Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for bringing us to this place this morning to worship you in hearing and applying your word. We pray that this morning you would give us ears that are clear to hear your word, hearts that are receptive to hear your word. We pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to apply and obey the words from your inspired word. We pray, God, that as we look into the perfect mirror, your word this morning, that we would not forget what you have said, but that we would go away after looking intently into your word and do what it says. Holy Spirit, set me apart this morning for your your holy work. I decrease so that you may increase. I become less so that you may become more. I pray that you would move me out of the way this morning and that you and you alone would be glorified. To help your people not to hear me or see me, but hear you and see you speaking to us, all of us, through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, once again, good morning. Thank you for joining us on this Lord's Day as we continue our exposition of the Gospel of John. Amen. I also would like to thank the elders for a job well done. Throughout John chapter 14, this morning, as we embark upon the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John, the Lord Jesus introduces us to yet another analogy in which he explains an absolute truth concerning himself and God the Father. Let's stand for the reading of God's word in order to discover what those truths are. John chapter 15, verse number 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is God's word. Let those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the church. You may be seated this morning. 
The Lord Jesus is ministering comfort to his disciples who now realize that their time with Jesus has all but come to an end. Jesus encouraged his disciples in John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. We are comforted by the fact that Jesus is the tender shepherd who cares so deeply for his sheep that he would encourage them with these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. But what was Jesus pointing his disciples toward in order to comfort their broken hearts? Jesus says in John 14, 1, believe in me or believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus begins to sink their lives into God and into himself. You believe in God. <clears throat> believe also in me. Jesus was seeking to point his disciples toward their greatest need. Knowing who their God is. To understand the glory, the grace and the grandeur of God. That is now theirs because of their union with Christ. Jesus knew that their greatest need was to, to know that he and the father are one. The great mission that he was undertaking was a mission that he had taken at the request of the father. He says, I and the father are one. The Lord Jesus has been caught up. The Lord Jesus has not been caught up in unforeseen circumstances. Only to now find himself unaware that he is falling into the hands of wicked men. No. This was the eternal plan of God between the Father and the Son. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This was no mistake. This was no failed plan of God. This was the eternal decree within the Godhead. And out of love and obedience to the Father... And love for a particular people. Christ embraced this mission to the full. The Lord Jesus himself is living by faith. Hear that again. The Lord Jesus Christ himself is living by faith. He is the prototypical man of faith. He is the example of what it means to live by faith. To live in obedience. Loving obedience to the Father. And he is calling his disciples to be like him. He is calling you here today to be like him, to live out their lives then and to live out our lives here today in love and obedience to the will of the heavenly father. In these verses, there is clearly an Old Testament background to the metaphor of the vine and the branches. We here today read this passage and we admire the beautiful metaphor. But first century Jews knew what Jesus was implying and what he meant when he said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Israel was the vine of God's planting. Israel was God's special vine. He said, I called out of Egypt my son forth. Israel was God's son. Hosea 10.1 Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruits. Isaiah 5, 1, let me sing for my beloved, my love concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard. 
on a very futile hill. Verse 7 of that same chapter. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. All throughout the Old Testament, Israel was described as God's special vine. But that vine was an unfruitful one. Israel was a deeply disappointing vine. Israel was a covenantally disobedient vine. The disciples were well aware of Israel's disobedient past. So when the Lord Jesus tells his disciples, I am the true vine, he self-consciously identifies himself as the true vine in contrast to the unfaithful vine, Israel. Just as John, just as in John 6, Christ identifies himself as the true bread. He is everything Israel failed to be. He is the faithful son of God. He is the faithful son who is living in unyielding obedience to the will of God. He is the faithful son who wholly and unreservedly gave himself to the father. That which Israel failed to do. Christ does that which Israel failed to be. Christ was and is. He gave unto God what Israel could not. Perfect life of faith and obedience. He is in the same way the second Adam. The true Adam. The one who faithfully obeyed God and found his delight in God. So Christ is true Israel. Just as Christ is truly the second Adam. The true Adam. Christ did not fail to keep the covenant with God. The covenant that Israel failed to keep over and over again. Christ did not fail to faithfully fulfill and obey all of the law. It was his delight to do so. I am the true vine. He is the perfect substance of what the shadows of the old covenant pointed toward. He is the perfect substance of what the shadows of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, pointed toward. He is the true vine. The vine that produces fruit that brings glory to the Father. In these 11 verses, we see two dominant points, and they are related. First, that Jesus is the source of all God-glorifying spiritual fruit. I am the vine, he says. And second... That the production of spiritual fruit of men and women marks out those who are true disciples of Christ. Verse 8, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus wants his disciples to know and he wants you and I to know that what brings glory to the father is this, that we They and we bear much fruit. That we bear fruit. That we bear much fruit. Well then, this begs a question, does it not? How are we to bear fruit that will bring glory to the Father? The great goal of the believing life is to bring glory to God. And when we bring glory to God, we discover our true purpose for life, for living. Brothers and sisters, our highest joys will be found when God is glorified in our lives. But again, the question is how? 
How are we to bear this fruit? And what is this fruit? That the Father, that will bring glory to the Father. I have just five points for you this morning. Number one, Jesus proclaims himself as the source of all God-glorifying fruit-bearing. Jesus declares himself as the source of all God-glorifying fruit-bearing. Verse 1 and verse 4 and 5. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser or husbandman. Abide in me, verse 4, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me, verse 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am he and I in he, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What was the Lord telling his disciples then? And what is the Lord telling us here today? He is telling us this, that he is the life. That only as we are joined to him can we produce life. He is the life. And only as we are joined to him can we produce life. The life that brings glory to God is found in Christ and Christ alone. How do the disciples and how do we become joined to the true vine? If only by being joined to the true vine can we bear fruit that brings glory to the Father, then the obvious question is this. Am I joined to the true vine? And if I'm not, then how can I be joined to the true vine? And the Bible gives us the answer from Genesis to Revelation that we are joined to the true vine. Through faith and through faith alone in Christ alone. Self-denying, Christ-relying, faith alone in Christ alone joins us to the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. But one should ask, well then how does that happen? How does the Father join us to the Son in faith? Christ answers that question for us. Verse 3, already you have been made clean. Because of the word I have spoken to you. How did the disciples become clean? How did they become united to Christ, the great sin cleanser? You are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. When Jesus washed Peter's feet, Peter misunderstood the meaning of the washing. He believed that Jesus in washing them was making them clean through the water. Therefore, his response was, Lord, not only my feet... But my hands and my head, Jesus knew the heart and mind of this man, Peter, and he knew his misunderstanding. Peter, don't confuse this water as you somehow being made clean. Verse 10, he tells him in verse 13, in chapter 13, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but it's completely clean. Listen to what he tells him. And you are clean. But not all of you. You all have been washed in my word. But not all of you. How was Peter and the disciples made clean? Through faith. And faith in the word. It was a miraculous, marvelous work of the Holy Spirit. But among the twelve, there was a renegade. There was a devil. Judas looked, spoke, 
and even acted the part of a true disciple for three years. For three years. Looked, acted, and even spoke the part for three years. He lived among true disciples for three years, completely unnoticed, unrecognized as a wolf in sheep's clothing. For three years, unrecognized as the one who would betray the only innocent man to ever live, the Son of God. For three years. No one ever suspected that he would betray Christ. He apparently gave no indication that he was among, not among those who had been washed in the word. Even when Christ reveals to his disciples that they sit as they sit at the Last Supper, he says to them, there is a traitor in our midst. And you and I, in hindsight, can look back and say, it's Judas. But to those sitting at the table, they even question, is it I? That's how under the radar he flew. Because Judas was able to do what many are sadly able to do each week as many gather, many saints gather for corporate worship. They are the hypocrites, the hypocrites, those who wear the mask but are not truly united to the vine. Brothers and sisters, it is one thing to give the impression that you have been made clean. It is quite another thing to actually have been made clean by the grace and spirit of God. The Lord is the source of all God-glorifying fruit-bearing. The life of the vine is the life that is transferred into the branches of the vine. The life that courses through the branches of the vine is the same life that is found in the vine itself. This is why the gospel is all about Christ. He is the gospel. You cannot separate Christ from the gospel. Or the blessings of the gospel. Because Christ himself is the blessing of the gospel. That is why we preach Christ. And him crucified. In a sense. In a sense. We don't preach salvation. In a sense. We don't preach repentance or faith. We preach Christ. And the necessity to repentance. We preach Christ. And the necessity for us to have faith in God toward Christ. We preach Christ and our necessity to be saved from the wrath of God. Because Christ is the gospel. And if we are to be united in Christ and made clean in the word, then the life of Christ, listen, becomes our life. Therefore, we cannot but, no matter how poorly or even how inconsistently, we cannot but in some measure bear fruit if we are united to Christ Because we are connected to him. Therefore, if you are connected to Christ, you cannot but bear fruit. No matter how poorly or how inconsistently, you cannot but bear fruit. If you are connected to Christ. A tree is known by its fruit, is it not? His life flows through our life. John Calvin, commenting on Galatians 2.20, says, Engrafted into the death of Christ, we derive from it a secret energy, as a twig does from the root. The believer does not live by his own life, but is animated by the secret power of Christ. If we are to bear fruit to the glory of God, We must then be united to the vine, the Lord Jesus Christ.
the only life that ever pleased God is found in Christ. And it is only as we partake in that life that we can bear fruit in this life. If you have not placed your faith in Christ alone this morning, for the forgiveness of your sins and for salvation from the wrath of God, I implore you, I beg you, repent of your sins and be united to Christ. Secondly, spiritual fruit explains the pruning work of the vine dresser or the husbandman. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. Or that does bear fruit, he prunes. That it may bear more fruit. Verse 6 as well. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered thrown into the fire and burned. Brothers and sisters, friends, why does the father prune? Is it because he's callous? No. No. A thousand times to his elect. No. Not because he's callous. Because he cares. Not because he's callous, but because he cares. Why does he prune? Because he cares. It is care, brothers and sisters. It is love that causes the Heavenly Father to come in with his knives and with his shears and prune our lives. I am thankful for my upbringing. I grew up two blocks away from a vineyard in the Fairfax countryside. And each season, the field workers would go into the vineyards with their knives, with their shears, Violent weapons, deadly weapons, and they would go into that vineyard and they would cut and they would prune and they would also take away. They removed dead branches, they pruned others, they dressed wild vines. Why? To be radically violent? No. So that they would grow properly. Out of care for branches of the vine. The explanation for divine providences or fiery trials that God brings into our lives. Listen, brothers and sisters, or so that we may display more of the life of the true vine. That we may display that we are finding our source in the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why the pruning comes. The pruning comes so that you may produce more, not less. And when the pruning does come, we must not look upon the trials or the great providences of God as if God is in some way punishing us. Rather, he is showing great mercy, kindness and love to us. We pray that James is helping you to gain a better understanding of the life of the vine. Count it all joy. My brothers, when trials of various kinds come your way. Why? For you know. That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Why, James? So that you may be perfect and complete. Lacking nothing. Samuel Rutherford, a Puritan, wrote to a grieving mother. He says to her, If waters would stand, they would rot. And grace withers without adversity. Our Lord is telling his disciples this, that if they are to grow up in him, 
to be the kind of men that will bear fruit to the glory of God, then they will be men that will experience and endure difficult providences, difficult fiery trials, testing and pruning from the Father. If they are to produce God-glorifying fruit, they will experience in their own lives, listen brothers, the cutting and pruning from the heavenly vine dresser, our husbandman, God the Father. They will be brought into dark and deep waters. Listen, not because God is callous and not because God is indifferent, but because God longs to see in the lives of his children more of the likeness of his son. And there are some things that can only be done by God in dark valleys and not on high mountaintops. Being like Christ or being in the likeness of Christ will come by how? By being patterned after the life of Christ. He is the prototypical life of believing life. And his life was well acquainted with trials, suffering. Isaiah calls him a man well acquainted with sorrows and tears. Why? The heavenly vine dresser. The husbandman poured the perfect prune, the perfect son of God. Hebrew says he learned obedience because the husbandman loved the son. And because he, not because he hated the son, because he loved the son and he wanted his son to be an example to us, his followers, of what it truly means to live the life that glorifies God. So he prunes, he cuts, he goes in with violent weapons. And what is that violent weapon? What is those, what are the shearers? What are the knives? He comes to you with a sword. And what does he cut? He cuts joint and marrow, flesh, to get down to the very thoughts and intentions of your heart. The weapon that he uses, the instrument that he uses, is his very word. And as it is doing this morning, spiritual surgery on your hearts, it does to those whose hearts have been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. To those who have not been changed, you will be cut off and thrown away. Because you no longer have any need in the vine. His knife is his word. Three, spiritual fruit bearing is nourished by abiding in Christ. Verse four. And five, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abiding or remaining in Christ is key. To growing in the likeness of Christ, which brings glory to the Father. And that again presents more questions. What does it mean to abide in Christ? And why does Jesus impress upon his disciples the need for them to abide? Over and over again he says to them, verse 6, abide. Verse 7, abide. Verse 9, abide. And verse 10, abide. What is this repeated emphasis on abiding? Let us approach the second question first. Jesus is warning his disciples, listen close, against easy 
believism. Jesus is warning his disciples against spiritual presumption. Brothers and sisters, what was the great sin of God's Old Testament people? God called them to himself. God had given them his law. He blessed them with unfailing love and unfailing favor. But when you read the history of God's old covenant people, it is a history of covenantal presumption. They prided themselves in the blessing of the covenant God rather than in God himself. They rested presumptuously on the privileges and the privileges were many. But privileges will neither take you to glory nor produce fruit to the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, blessings, as it were, will not produce fruit. And blessings do not per se bring glory to God. Those who are presuming upon the grace of God still exist today. They presume that God is so gracious that he will not judge them for sin. They presume that God is a loving God who winks his eye at sin and ignores sin. They do not understand or presume or understand the the implications of a God who does not judge sin. A God who does not judge sin is not a God who is righteous because he allows sin to go unpunished. And that is not our God. They call him a God of love and that he is. And he expresses his great love by condemning sin. And there are those who presume that their great knowledge will suffice when they stand before the throne of God. Meaning that they believe that their great wealth of knowledge and understanding of creeds and doctrines gives them a righteous standing before God. And this is also a fool's errand. What do we read when we reach the end of the book of Jude? Jude verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Jesus is warning his disciples against easy believism, against thinking that they, because they are somewhat connected to him, that they will inevitably bear fruit because they are connected to Christ. Take heart, he says, or take this to heart, abide. Don't just Think or presume that because we know each other in some way, that you are somehow safe. Continue to abide. You will bear no fruit unless you abide. And if you bear no fruit, then you will be cut off. What does it mean to abide? I have heard this verse all my life as a believer, but it has rarely been communicated properly. Verse 7 If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus sets himself forward as the pattern of what abiding really is. Jesus sets himself forth as the pattern of what abiding is all about. How did Jesus continue to abide in his Father's love? As the mediator. As the Godman who represented Christ before God, before us, before God, how did he continue to abide in his father's love? Verse 10 tells us by keeping the commands of God. How did Christ keep the commands of his father? Not merely 
out of duty to the commands, but out of love to the Father and the commands that come from Him. Christ did not go to the cross in order to win God's love. Christ had God's love, therefore He went to the cross. We do not come to church Obey the commands of Christ because we are attempting to win the love of God. We have the love of God in Christ. Therefore, we obey God because we are found in Him. You can win nothing from God. You can earn nothing from God. Even if your attendance, even if you think that you're in your attendance, that you are somehow earning something from God, you are sadly mistaken. You earn nothing from God. It has been earned by grace through faith in Christ alone. You can do nothing to earn anything from God. Abide in his love. Therefore, he kept the commands. Again, we may think that keeping commands is legalism. And it can be legalism. If we keep commands in order to win something from God. And again, you can win nothing from him. You can earn nothing from him. And Christ alone. We have all things. We keep his commandments because in Christ, he has given us all things. It is to express our love to him. It is to express our desire for him. It is to express our delight in him. If you love me, he says, you will keep my commands. Abiding in Christ, brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, abiding in Christ is not a feeling. Abiding in Christ is not some warm inner glow. Abiding in Christ is not some invisible fire that you are trying to capture. We say foolishly, I want to get back to where I used to be. We say foolishly, I want to feel it again. I want to have that feeling again. As I did when I was first saved. Friend, if these are your words and you are chasing the wind. Friend, if these are your words and you are chasing an illusion that does not exist except in your mind. Abiding is obedience. Abiding is obedience. And obedience is out of love. And love comes from understanding grace that has been given for sin that has been forgiven. When one says, I want it, and I find, but yet I find it hard to obey God or to seek a life that glorifies Him. What you are saying in essence is this. I have not yet been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I still love sin more than I love God. If that is you, then I implore you, repent of your sin and turn to Christ. Or you will be cut off. And thrown away to be burned. Abiding in Christ is all about being shaped and and styled by the commands of God. It is about having your whole life shaped and fashioned. Not by the world that we live in. Or even by this evangelical culture that we are a part of. But by the ever living, ever sure word of God. C.S. Lewis said, fads and fashions come and go. But they mainly go. They mainly go. Our lives are to be shaped by the abiding in the transgenerational 
after generation to generation, transgenerational truth of God's word that has touched every generation that has abided in it. His commands are not burdensome, brothers and sisters. His commands are not burdensome. The world may tell you his commands are burdensome. The world may tell you that his commands are weights that are holding you down. Ian Murray Ian Hamilton says God's commands are not weights to hold you down. They are wings to help you fly. His commands are not burdensome. How could they be? They come from the heavenly father who spared not his only son and delivered him up for us. How could his commands be burdensome? Abiding in Christ is about being shaped and styled in the way that we think and the way that we act and the way that we behave by God's word. The psalmist of Psalm 119 loved God's law. Every verse says something about the decree of God, the statutes of God, the word of God, the law of God. What was it that he loved? Was it the law? No, it was the fact that it was God's law. That it was God's law. Not that it was law, but that it was God's law. Therefore, he loved God's law. Do you love God's law? Do you love his word? It's one thing to recite his word. It's another thing to love his word. The recitation of truth is one thing, but being shaped and styled by that truth is another thing altogether. Brothers and sisters, how will you survive when the providences of God, when the pressures and fiery trials of life come raging into your lives? Not if, when, how will you survive? By abiding in Christ and his word. Take heed to these words. Brothers, sisters, friends, visitors. Four. The absence of spiritual fruit can mean only that we have not been united to Christ. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered. Thrown into the fire and burned. The absence of spiritual fruit can only mean one thing. You have not been united to Christ. Is Jesus teaching that we can lose our salvation? No. No, and may it never be. Absolutely not. If you have been united to Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ. Not heaven, not earth, not angels, nor demons. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But it is a sad, tragic fact and reality that many people can be externally attached to Christ and yet be internally strangers to Christ. What a sobering scripture, Matthew seven twenty one. Many, many, many will come to me on that day and they will say, did we not prophesy on your, in your name and cast out many demons in your name? And he will respond to them, depart from me. I never knew you. What a sobering statement. It is possible to be externally and even sacramentally united to Christ. Again, even to the point where you will stand in an upper room and no one will suspect that you're a Judas. 
No one will suspect that you're a wolf. You will say all the Christian words. You will give the Christian smile, but behind your teeth is a devil who bears no fruit. No one seemed to know it was Judas. This should cause us to be fervent and diligent to ask, Lord, am I truly united to you? Don't let me deceive myself. My father used to say, it's bad when you fool others. But when you fool yourself, you are in danger. What is this fruit? What is this fruit that proves that we are truly his disciples? It's obvious. It's a life in the vine. It is likeness to Christ. It is Christ likeness. I listened to a sermon the other day from one of my reformed Calvinist brethren. And he said this in Colossians 3.12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, as God's elect. Listen to what the description is. Holy and beloved. Compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility. Meekness. Patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another. Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together. What does the the fruit-bearing life look like? It looks like this. The passage that I just read to you. Holy and beloved. Forgiving. Patient with one another. Kindness. This, my dear brothers and sisters. This is what it means to be truly reformed. This is true reformed theology. This is true abiding in Christ Christianity. What does it mean to look or to abide and have fruit? It means to be like Christ. Does that passage that I just read? Beloved, compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, bearing with one another. Forgiving one another as God has forgiven us. Loving toward one another. When I read that, would anybody think of you as being the description of that passage? Would anyone say, anybody say yes? That's my sister Doreen. Yes, that is my sister Ophelia. Yes, that is brother Isaiah. Yes, that is John. And be honest. Say no, maybe not. Then who are you abiding in? Because you cannot help but produce fruit if you abide in Christ. My son knows nothing of basketball. He's three years old. My son would probably call me his best friend. We are buds. And I'm thankful for the relationship my father in heaven has given me with my son. It mirrors that which I had with my own father. He knows nothing of basketball and yet his favorite player is Steph Curry. He wants his shoes. He wants his shirt. Why? Because his father is wearing his shoes and his father is wearing his shirt. If you are abiding 
in Christ, you cannot help but be like Christ. Let us ask God the Holy Spirit to graciously work in us in such a way that it would be evident that we are abiding in Christ, in the true vine. Why? For all of what we've said this morning, why? Fifth and finally, fruit for God's glory completes our joy. Fruit for God's glory or fruit to the glory of God completes our joy. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that you may be, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. What is the meat of Christ? What is the drink of Christ? It is to do the will of the Father. It is to obey the commands of the Father. And in that obedience, Christ is satisfied. And he is again the prototypical example of what it truly means to find true satisfaction. And it is found in obeying God, which brings glory to God. And in bringing glory to God, you will have much joy. Our joy is found in obeying the will of God, following the likeness of Christ, and thankfully, prayerfully, worshiping the Holy Spirit who is doing this and accomplishing this work in our lives. I got a walk with one of our brothers last night. We walked around downtown as we were preparing to share the gospel with different individuals, and it turned into me sharing the gospel with him and just Discipling him for about an hour. We're out of nowhere. Through the the middle one of in, in the middle of me drinking my hot chocolate, he broke apart from me. And when I thought he was going out to speak to one of his known friends, out of nowhere walks up to a Roman Catholic and says to him, Do you know the gospel? To my complete surprise, to my complete shock and awe. I stood there as chocolate milk began to pour down my face, not realizing I was still drinking. And watched him struggle through a presentation of the gospel. My response after it was all done was, the results are God's. The obedience is yours. You exemplify fruit by obeying and God brings the dead man to life. So do not be discouraged when it seems like obedience is getting you nowhere. That moment glorified God. And whether you know it or not, it has produced in you a source of joy that nothing in this world can give you. That no one in this world can give you. No substance, no thing, no person, no event, no activity. Nothing can give you. Let us stand.